Uh, welcome to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. This is episode 315. The Whale in the Room. This is Tony Bemis. Phil Parada. And Tom Lawrence. So the Whale in the Room. Is like... Docker's ship setting sail? <laughs> is the container sinking? <laughs> well, Docker might be docked, but the containers sail on. Oh. Mm. So that's, that's going to be one of our discussion topics when we get to the news. Uh, is there some news around Docker, whether or not it's really a business plan? Which is kind of, if, if anyone follows venture capital funding at all, uh, you couldn't notice, but we work. We don't work now. Um, WeWork was worth $49 billion, allegedly, until someone realized it's just an office-sharing program with no innovation that brings anything new to the market. And someone goes, I guess it's not worth that, and I guess you're bankrupt. <laughs> so Jeez. 49 and I, I love the titles of the articles, like $49 billion to zero. How did it happen? It's because it's made up money numbers. <laughs> That's how it happens. Watch any episodes of Silicon Valley, and you'll understand. They just throw darts at the board. That's your evaluation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anyways, uh, it's been a little while, so uh, we actually laugh because we have some XM security news. Um, we would have been repeating ourselves every week, but we had a few weeks where we didn't record a show, so we can summarize all the XM flaws in one show. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so what have you been up to last couple weeks, Tony? Oh, just working and stuff. Uh, been writing some scripts at work, so that's oh. been uh, fun. What are you writing them in? Uh, Bash. Oh, I, I really want to do... I got to brush up on bash like i uh i sometimes have gaps in my knowledge i'm like oh yeah it's been a long time since i took bash training i think the last time i did bash training would have been 2001 mm. well tom you use a linux machine don't you every day and you open up your terminal every day you're basically shell scripting at that point all day <laughs> yeah but there's like those knowledge gaps because i know what i know but i need to know more than i know so like i just like uh i spend too much time on stack exchange because i'm like how do you what's that one command <laughs> but i think we all do that now <laughs> we do yeah you know, it's interesting. I always thought that uh, Stack Exchange, that the the right answer was the one that was voted up the most. Mm -hmm. I always thought that. This week, I saw two of them that it was checked as the right answer, but it was not the highest. Like, the the, the right answer had, like, 314, and the uh, the one right below it had, like, 500 uh, votes oh, up. Oh, that's strange. Yeah. And the, another one had, uh, it was marked as the right answer, but had negative 14 and the one below it had, like, 25. I think that's one of the things the Internet has brought us more than anything else is the combination of uh, aspiration, inspiration, and this whole knowing things can be done and sharing knowledge thing. It's pretty wild when I look at how many views any of the videos I do get or some of the other videos that I watch get, and then all the answers that are in all these forums to make it quicker to get to the next project. That's uh, always just, like, from a human standpoint – Iterations took really long time. I was listening to John Green's podcast, and he talked about how long it took to come up with the QWERTY keyboard. And it was a good dive into a really interesting history, but it took years. A change now happens very fast. Uh, we go from no cell phones to a few years later to phones that have GPS and amazing features in them and destroying the camera market. For those of you that seen that article of how cell phones destroyed the camera market, it was just a sharp dive of the camera market disappeared as cell phones as soon as they got good cameras. It just ended. But this didn't happen over a 20 or 30 year history. So it's kind of interesting. I was thinking about that Linux, you know, it's just, it's everywhere now. It runs my car. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and uh, one of the things that I love about open source is that by having this information just out there for everyone to view, read, ingest, it rises all of us up. 
rather mm -hmm. than a paid-for product locked behind some sort of wall where only a slight few get to benefit from it. Yeah, and that's that was the concept of a lot of the research previously, um, and it's it's flipped on its head a lot. And now that there's ways you can even monetize the fact that you're sharing information, uh, you people making a living on just creating content on YouTube because you're distributing uh, the knowledge across a large group of people, you can actually make quite a bit of money on YouTube without having to you know, uh, try to charge everybody money. You just have to watch some stupid commercial. Or if you want, don't want commercials, YouTube's like $12 a month for no commercials. That, that's a lot of content available for commercial-free viewing for 12 bucks a month. It, it's just not that expensive, uh, which then that goes to the creators and it creates an ecosystem. So, yeah, the knowledge economy, it's interesting. Yeah. That's a good one. So uh, that is not what I spent my weeks thinking about, though. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so you had, Tony, just some bash scripting and stuff? Sorry, I got way off topic. <laughs> yeah. No, well, I uh, rewrote my script for uh, re-encoding uh, videos on my Plex server. Okay. So then now I'm down to even smaller, like a uh, less than a quarter of the size of what the uh, recorded values are. And, you know, related, uh, are you still running VMs and FreeNAS? Not anymore. Okay. I've I've moved over to uh, jails. Okay, we'll talk about that offline then, because I I've been trying, and I will tell you that is it's been less than pleasant. The uh, people have been asking me to do a video on it, so I said, fine, I'll dive into. It. I do all kinds of free NAS videos, but I'm like, okay, it's as bad as I thought. So doing the VMs, yeah. The I love the jails. Moving to VMs uh, is the tough part because you have to um, make sure it's set up for uh, the other boot method. Yeah. Um, that's and that's what I'm running into is some of the boot problems. Like it boots, but it doesn't give me the proper display. The display is scrambled. Oh, and it's it's a common problem. I searched it. I didn't find the answer immediately. So mm. we'll talk offline about that because it's yeah. it's kind of interesting. I think it's I think it's a cool platform in certain use cases to run the VMs in it. It's not as flexible as a full, you know, hypervisor like XCPNG or Proxmox, but it's still there's some use cases I have that I want to test out for a project I have for okay. a client. So cool. How about you, Phil? How's the farm? <laughs> uh, doing well. I haven't been there in about two weeks. Uh, my wife and I just got back uh, the other night from a uh, two-week stint on the West Coast. Um, we had a, a team meeting up in Portland, and then we did some traveling through California. It's my first time ever going to California, and it blew my mind. Different it, world. Completely different world. Um, I, I was in the heart of Silicon Valley, and nowhere here in the Midwest can even compare to the amount of craziness that I saw there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, everything from uh, a beer tw at, at any bar, $12. Uh, a Tesla is every other, every uh, other vehicle car. on mm -hmm. the road. Um, I got to see uh, Google Cloud's complex you've seen the cloud i i did it's yeah, someone it's, else's big data center it's very bright and shiny <laughs> <laughs> i got to see the intel building which is way nicer than the amd building directly across the street i saw mm. tons of microchip companies um i saw apple i was inside of one of the facebook complexes probably like building 29 and 26 were there mm. and i got to go inside of linkedin um it, did you have to take your profile picture? <laughs> I, I did take a new one there, yes. Oh, cool. I'm, I'm wondering if I get, like, a new LinkedIn badge or something, so I get, like, super all-star profile. That would be cool. <laughs> like, they have an incentive program on there. 
LinkedIn's pretty cool. That's it's cool. Okay. Yeah, that sounds yeah. like it was a really fun trip. It was. I got. Uh, I didn't get as many stickers as I would like to have, but I did get this really cool Facebook Hacktober sticker. Mm. It's oh, got a neat. pumpkin with mechanical spider legs. I like it. Mm. Um, I got to see. I got to see a lot of lot of cool stuff. But every every tech company that you walk into there, they have you sign NDAs. Mm. rightfully but it was kind of jarring the first time that i got to experience that i I took a step back and was like whoa wait i've never seen this anywhere here in the detroit area um there it's limited how many companies you'll see it there is an engineering firm that we have that you walk in your lobby and you're handed an nda before you leave their lobby well, or you can leave. You can literally leave, and they don't care. But <laughs> when each one of my staff has to sign an NDA because they do stuff. But we have much fewer of those companies here that are doing high-level engineering work. Um, so, yeah, that's true. You're not going to see that as often. Oddly enough, though, do you know, are you familiar with Zug Island? The, yes, uh, I am, unfortunately. Yeah, that is an unfortunate place. Uh, that is where steel happens. And I have been a long time to minute. I used to take your phone away. Um, they wouldn't let you have it. So this wasn't like wow. cover up the camera. That was one of the policies they had when you went into uh, some of their stuff. I used to do work for them. You checked your phone with the security guards, and you checked it back out when you got back. You couldn't have it. That was just that was a really simple rule they had. No filming, no cameras. I, irony there, I was there to film and use camera stuff. But their solution for that was um, <laughs> they would ask me for the camera cards uh, for all the photography work I used to do for them. Oh, yeah. Side uh, note, uh, I was a photographer for a while. <laughs> <laughs> right. So on, on the complete opposite side of NDAs and secretive, one of the coolest things that we got to experience was this little nonprofit called Free Geek, um, somewhere in the heart of Portland. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, uh, the website is freegeek.org. We got to take apart all sorts of different computers and electronic gear and prepare it for either rebuilding uh, new machines for the community or just recycling. Um, so I got to sit on the bench that takes apart Dell servers, and let me tell you, that was a ton of fun. Oh, yeah. They've been around for a while. There's, you can look up a few videos about them. They're a pretty, pretty new organization. Uh, if, if you have a Dell server that you just need to take apart and it's not cooperating, well, a couple hammer blows will fix that. Yep. You can <laughs> yeah. get them drives out of there. It just <laughs> takes a little more effort. <laughs> uh, but... but uh, we, we got home uh, super late Friday night, um, still trying to process all of the traveling and the jet lag. Uh, that's why my voice sounds a bit hoarse. The jet lag is rough. Yes, it was. I I feel like I, I lost a couple days of my life there. I, I traveled north-south you know, as much as possible. <laughs> uh, but that that's it for me. Um, I'll have I'll have some cool raspberry pie projects coming down the pipe uh, within the next few weeks. I've got... Tons and tons of inspiration. Awesome. How about so, you, Tom? Raspberry Pi project. I just uh, finished another one. So we had an idea to do some pen testing by sending people Raspberry Pis with their permission. And it's pen testing for companies that need some, like, they want you to help evaluate internally, but, you know, you don't want to uh, send them a whole computer. You want something easier, convenient, or even when we prospect new clients, um, being able to put something on the inside of the network with their permission, I'll add, legally, mm-hmm. Um but I built a Raspberry Pi with Kali Linux, a Raspberry Pi 4 with zero tier on it. Uh, so if you're not familiar with the zero tier, it is a 
I loosely would call it an SD-WAN solution. I mean, I guess it is. it falls within that category of software-defined networking. Uh, but what it can do is, without you opening up any ports, it can connect all the computers in the same way for those of you familiar with the Hamachi did. It adds another network adapter and creates a private network address. And then I have that same private network address on other devices. So no matter where that device goes, as long as it has internet access, I have access to it from the inside of the network. Uh, and then I combine that with loading X2Go, which, by the way, runs awesome on a Raspberry Pi 4. Um, mm. It works quite well. Other than you can't connect to local desktop, but you can spawn new sessions. So it kind of works as a cool pivot inside of a network. Or if you just want to have access uh, to a network with a bunch of IoT devices, for example, that doesn't have a computer on site, this gives you you know full web browser access and everything. And one of the unusual use cases that I tested, uh, X2Go supports published applications. They work awesome on a Raspberry Pi. So you can run the web browser inside that network as a pub- published application with all local resource access, but have it rendered on your computer. I did some videos on this. It's actually pretty fun and really easy to set up. I've got a use case for this at home. Yeah, you can just spawn these sessions right there, and you now can spawn a browser on your laptop, but it's actually running as a local resource on the device that spawned it, and that device can be a inexpensive Raspberry Pi 4. So uh, it works really, really well. So that's been, that was one of the things I played with. Uh, the other exciting news, because you mentioned Tesla, I got the version 10 update of the Tesla. And I was excited when it came. It's like Linux. You know, you're scared when you get a Microsoft update. You're excited when you get Linux updates. And you're really excited when your car says, there's an update to your car. And I knew it was version 10. Version 10 comes with Cuphead. So now I can plug an Xbox controller into the dashboard of my car and play Cuphead on the screen. Or watch YouTube or Hulu or Netflix. And uh, it also, they added pickup trucks to the cars it can recognize. So when you're driving in a Tesla, uh, you guys can look this up. It shows you all the cars around you. And it now I and it always identified them, but pickups and SUVs got classified the same. So now it actually draws pickup trucks differently than SUVs. It's a, it's a novel, stupid thing, but it is cool. Uh, plus, you can spin the navigation around because it's like a follow behind of the car. If you touch it, it spins it around, so you can actually uh, watch the car from the front and look at all the cars behind you. It's tracking because it tracks all the cars and all the lanes around you. We did that for a, a little while. It was pretty trippy, but then we just went back to playing karaoke in the car. Yeah, karaoke. <laughs> it's karaoke, according to Tesla. That is now a built-in feature as well. So it puts all the lyrics on the screen, and it does it does make you, when you turn it on, you touch a button that says, I'm not the driver, because <laughs> it says you shouldn't be doing this. You should be paying attention to the road. But it does sell self-driving mode. So you put on self-driving, you can do some karaoke. Uh, so that was kind of exciting. Other than that, I've just been uh, doing the usual uh Lots of little fun projects here and there that I'm posting on YouTube. But uh, oh, and we have some more firewalls to review. Um, we have in, I, I'm looking at the box over there. Uh, NetGate sent us this time. First time they've ever sent me anything. They got a new product guy mm-hmm. in there, and he was actually surprised he never sent anything. I said, Look, I don't know how you guys work internally, but they've never mailed us. He goes, You got to do a lot of videos, and we never sent you anything. I said, I got some ink pens. <laughs> and he's kind of mm-hmm. laughed. I said, I made a fun joke about pen testing and posted on Twitter that you guys retweeted, and it got really popular. <laughs> and I said, But no, you've never sent me anything than ink pens and stickers. Uh, so they gave me one of their SG5100s that I'm going to be reviewing, um, which is one of the boxes I've been wanting to review. We just never had any clients buy it um, because they either go all the way up to their really highest-end HA models that we've put in data centers, and they've went their lower-end models. But I only think we've had a couple clients buy the in-between one, but it never passed through our hands. Uh, I only really review mm-hmm. stuff when it passes through the shop versus um, a lot of companies just direct order and pay us to program. That's uh, more how our business model works. We're not in the race to the bottom trying to get you the best deal on hardware. So I, I love when people ask me, what's the best deal on hardware? I don't know, Amazon? 
well, I, I want to buy it from you. I said, yeah, I can't beat Amazon. Why not? I said, I, <laughs> why not? I don't know. Ask Jeff. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what do you mean why not? Yeah. <laughs> you notice I lack an entire massive multi-billion dollar cloud infrastructure. And Tom, an you don't have buildings sales. in every single state? I don't have a building in every in more than one. By the way, mm. if you've ever been to an Amazon warehouse, they are immense. They are some of the biggest warehouses that you will ever walk into. And we have three of them right in this area. We've got Livonia. We've got uh, right down the street here in Brownstown, and we got one over in Romulus. They're immense. Mm. Yeah, they're huge. They do same-day shipping for us. Um, their algorithm knows what we like to buy, so we buy stuff. If we order it in the morning, it's here in the afternoon. Nice. So <laughs> that's that's a whole nother. Like, people ask, well, why don't you stock much inventory? Well, why would I? There's this, this three giant warehouses, and one of them always seems to have the things I need. <laughs> and they can have them to me if I order before, I think it's before 9 a.m., they'll have them to me in the afternoon. And if I order later in the day, they'll do the afternoon delivery thing. They built wow. a machine, man. It's amazing. Anyways, uh, that's what I've been up to. You know, uh, I ordered something, uh, uh, parts for my car. And I ordered it at like 3 a.m. because I was, I was up working. Mm-hmm. And I just had a few minutes on my lunch. It's not a weird time for you. <laughs> to get on it. Right. It's not weird for me. But I ordered it at 3 a.m. And then uh, that day, I was sleeping. It came in. My wife's like, yeah, here's the package. Like so, literally same day. Yeah, that was, that was pretty. They're cool. very efficient, and we realize because we order a lot of the same things all the time. The things that we order frequently show up same day. It's next day for things, and it's, I'm assuming it's just where they are in the warehouse. And mm-hmm. from a tracking method, when it's same day delivery, obviously it was in stock. But we order the same switches all the time. We order the same network cable free, very frequently when we're buying cable. And I'll, many times Amazon beats the price of our local vendors, and they definitely beat them in a. Uh, delivery speed price so yeah it's really it's scary that it's becoming one giant conglomerate but if you dig into how amazon works and how many people are involved and how many people just use them as a facilitator to sell versus it's not actually amazon direct selling things the scary part is people have lost their business like they built a business selling a device on amazon Amazon goes amazon basics we're coming to get you and uh, they'll just make the same thing that you're making for cheaper and do it direct go well why should we have a third party involved mm-hmm. so they do have a lot of that they do I'm, I'm not trying to say they're a great company in all aspects they're scary they're big but they are conveniently down the street right. <laughs> anyways listener feedback is that what we're moving on to next yes we are all right and uh, what, what do we got here for listener feedback? We love hearing from you. Email us at show at smlr.us. Uh, I want to say .us.com, but that would be completely wrong and me just that sending would be. email to, bit, to the bit buck <laughs> in the sky. <laughs> so what do we got for listener feedback here? We have one from uh, Brian out in Minneapolis. He A couple shows ago, he had a problem with his PFSense and... Um, PPOE, mm-hmm. uh, PPPOE yeah. uh, connection. Well, he finally got that sorted out. Um, I, long story short, he re, he rebuilt uh, his his machine, um, reinstalled PFSense, and then it just started working. And then he sent over some logs um, from uh, the PFSense uh, version of PHPFPM. You can see a couple of PPPoE errors, but he's, he states that it's working. And um, if we want to go further with that, we can just open up a bug on the uh, right PFSense package. Right. Yeah, and 
and we mentioned this before, it is a challenge dealing with the PPPoE. There's not as many people using it, so it that you know back to that uh, scale of the internet when a lot of people are using something it's easy to find solutions to the problem but the ppoe standards appear to be a problem because they're they're local and my my impression is at least they're specific to the different providers that you're hooking up with or can be at least but uh also nuke and pave great option (laughs) right i've uh i've had to do that only one time there was one update over the years that pf sense had a problem with and if you didn't follow the instructions um and I didn't, <laughs> it will break. But because I do backups all the time, it was it's really not a big deal. You just grab the one XML file and just reload it and use that XML file, and it redoes the whole system properly. I had a problem with a minor issue with Sericata, and people get worried about it because there's all the tuning that goes into setting up Sericata. But all you have to do is uninstall it, save the settings, and reinstall it, and it fixed the problem with it. It ended up with some uh, permissions issue, which was hmm. their answer was just uninstall package, Reinstall package. Didn't have to reboot the server or anything. Downtime was like a couple packets lost. It wasn't really downtime. It did pause the system. I noticed that I had like 5% packet loss over a couple minutes while I did that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hardly. So we didn't even do it in the middle of the day. <laughs> Anyways, um, so good news that he got that solved. And I don't know that we have any other... We, we have a couple things. Um, so this is back from the middle of September and... Uh, Listener Phil C., um, I apologize that I didn't get back to you about this, but oh. he sent us an article about running your own internal CA with Acme support, and that's something that's very near and dear to my heart. And there's a there's a company called Small Step. Um, you can go to smallstep.com to check them out, but they have they have their own uh, Acme uh, compatible CA called Step CA. And they go through all of the different steps using their uh, step CLI command and using the caddy web server, which does uh, automatic uh, TLS uh, certificate issuance for you. Um, I got to actually meet the developer of caddy. His name's Matt Holt, and he's a very nice guy. Oh, cool. Um, but this this article goes through the entire um, Acme uh negotiation and certificate issuance process um and this allows you to instead of running like the boulder ca like let's encrypt does to run your own internal ca in a very easy uh to use way step by step and they also show output and links to tons and tons of docs as well that's Um, cool we'll have this link in the show notes yeah i'll throw it in there Um, personally for uh, my house, I just do self-signed certificates, but this would allow me to add a little bit of polish, uh, to all of the services that I publish in home. And for nerd cred, that feels pretty good. Right. I've had a few people ask me about doing that because, uh, we do the same thing even here. And it's part of it because I didn't, you know, we have a ton of internal things that have internal names, but we didn't want to deal with, uh, having extra CAs or, publishing all those but i you know if i found one that did dns i could do it kind of easy i just don't like exposing any porch or anything like that so i know there's ways to do it without it and that's what uh, some of this looks like it is i agree and if you don't if you don't want to run your own internal ca the caddy web server can do automatic uh tls self-signing for any particular vhost that you want so then all you have to do is install the web server and proxy your service through it and there you go, a self-signed cert. 
on any sort of application. And then you don't have to worry about Nginx or Apache or anything like that. Um, I use that fairly frequently as well. Hmm. Very cool. That's definitely interesting. It's a well, well detailed write-up too. There's a lot. It walks you through each little piece of it. Um, the We have another uh, email from listener Brandon about uh, episode 314 where we talked about the core boot PC engine uh, setup that I'm running for a firewall. Um, I sent him a couple pictures of the the little device that will unbrick a failed core boot install and uh, also the cables that I used with it. Um, he he told us that he really loves to use uh, Tink VPN, and we got into a, a nice little. Or he got into a nice little conversation about uh, different VPNs um, and NTP, and just thank you for emailing in. Yeah, I haven't used uh, Tink in forever. I remember testing it like forever ago, and I never did any in depth with it. I was like, oh, that's kind of neat. I've always just been like OpenVPN. I know is well audited and well vetted, so I like it. Um, ain't broke, don't fix it. It transports fast, but there's there's definitely a few other ones out there. And of course, everyone's getting excited because as we move into the five series kernel, we're getting closer to having Wireshark inside there, or what? Not Wireshark, WireGuard. I'm sorry, WireGuard. Yeah, WireGuard. And uh, that's a really fast VPN because of where it runs and the methodologies, and it's less lines of code. And so far, I don't know if it's actually gone through actual code auditing but i know it's uh, quite fast and you know eventually it'll go through some code auditing open vpn's been poked at but there's a lot of code in there to poke at <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> and then i believe the last thing we have is just some email confirmations uh tony and i will be at the ohio linux fest coming up on november 1st okay and we'll be there we'll have tons of stickers that my wife has designed for us yeah, look us up if you're going to be there. Uh, we haven't worked out the exact times we're going to be coming down, but hopefully uh, it'll be sometime on Friday, and then we'll be there for Saturday at for the the actual conference. Uh, and then stick around Saturday night and come on, then driving, leaving, I guess, Sunday morning. So, Yep. And if you want to, if you want to uh, make sure that you get to see us, send us an email at show at smlr.us, and we can coordinate from there. Yep, and the uh, I might make an appearance if I can on Saturday. I don't. I fly back from another event that conflicts with it on Friday, so mm. I'll see what I can do to if I can make that happen. So I can't offer any guarantees. I gotta look because just my wife wants me to go to some other event. Yeah, I'm less interested in. <laughs> if you can fly into Columbus, we'll pick you up. Well, there's another option too. <laughs> I could just fly into Columbus and have that changed. So that solves the problems, and I'd be there Friday and Saturday. So. I don't know, I'll figure it out. But it's only, uh, was Columbus, like two and a half or three hours from here? It's not too far, mm-hmm. so. Yeah. Excuse to drive the Tesla. <laughs> For it to drive me there. You mean ride in the Tesla? Yeah, ride in the Tesla. <laughs> I like road trips in that car. <laughs> I've got all these. I've only had it like a month and a half, and i got 6,000 miles on it. <laughs> wow. So, anyways. That was it. What are we moving on to next? Uh, next is Distro Fever. What's new in the distro world? And we're getting really close to the, uh, we're at 12.1 beta 3 for free BSD. So mm-hmm. with that, 
once the final release of the new FreeBSD will come, updates to PFSense and updates to FreeNAS, two projects I love, um, that follow downstream from being BSD-based. So that's pretty exciting. New features, what new exciting things do they have? Uh, addresses send bugs in ZFS? What, what, what? Mm. <laughs> uh, looks like it's a lot of small iterative changes, nothing, nothing earth-shattering, but progress is being made. So what other distributions? Of course, CentOS has an update. Yeah. Did you know CentOS is coming out with a rolling release? That's yes, right. they are. CentOS Stream. Neat. Yeah. We, we looked at that for a couple minutes, and we're like, how does this work with Fedora? It kind of feels like the same thing, but maybe I'm just missing the important bit of information that differentiates, like, Fedora Rawhide versus CentOS Stream. I was, I was listening to an interview with a guy that uh, works on the um, team, and he said that uh, they're, like, in between Fedora and Red Hat now, that the stream is going to be not as cutting edge as Fedora, but it's going to be ahead of Red Hat and uh, and changes and updates and, and stuff. Hmm. That's actually very interesting. Yeah. Um, because I've I've been switching a lot of my own systems over to Fedora just to get, like, important bug fixes and patches. Now, that, Fedora requires a license? No, it does no. not. Okay, Fedora doesn't. Okay. Yeah, Fedora you, is like the... Only the Red Hat one requires the license. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. And if you've ever used uh, the EPEL, Apple repository mm -hmm. on CentOS, a lot of that is from Fedora upstream packages. Okay. Mm. I am uh, a dweller only in the Debian-based worlds, so <laughs> I just don't – I had a need to venture out. So everything I build and even all the customer stuff we service, 100% of them are all Debian-based or Ubuntu. Mm -hmm. So the minor exception is I know that um, both XCP and G runs on CentOS, but they customize the repository so it's not full. And same with FreePBX. It's CentOS, but with customized repositories, so not everything is – it's not the same as running it raw. It's a you know custom distribution. Right. I, uh, I ran a CentOS server uh, previously, and uh, I uh, – so at work, we, I had to have security scans against it and stuff, and – they kept on coming back that the kernel I had had flaws in it, and it was it was like the stock kernel that came with the current you know stable version, and they kept on saying, "Oh no, you can't have that version. You have to have this version number," and the only way to update is to go and get get it from the EPL or mm. EPEL. Uh, yep, and there's also the um, it's called the EL repo uh, for CentOS. You can get. Uh, Fedora kernels. You can get mm -hmm. um, mainline, and you can get the latest uh, 5.x series kernel. I've run that at a previous uh, job. It's worked fine for me, but it's a bit strange running CentOS with like the absolute newest kernel. So buyer beware. Right. Mm -hmm. I bet I've, if I had uh, done lag work to show how I'm mitigating against whatever uh, vulnerability, then they would have let me just leave it at the default, but uh, I was able to get it updated, and they stopped bugging me. All right. Uh, so I see a couple other ones. React OS has an update. Um, and did we mention that Ubuntu 19.10 is coming out? Mm, yep, this month. Yep. 
Do you know uh, when the actual release date is? I don't, but I do see that they have a a pre-release of the beta. So, like, a gamma? <laughs> Super alpha? Super alpha? Super alpha. <laughs> uh, what else yeah. is in here? That, that's it. It's not as... Uh, oh, you know, I'm not tested this, but a lot of people have asked me about this. The Univention Corporate Server is an enterprise class distribution based on Debian Linux. The project's latest update to, uh, is 4.4. That's in the release list, but uh, it's kind of an all-in-one server to, if I'm understanding this correctly, uh, replace your Active Directory and everything. It's basically like a Windows Small Business Server replacement. And mm-hmm. my problem I run into with any of these is they never fully replace Windows Server because there's always some services. That it, it can work for things like, yeah, I just want to do file sharing and I want to have a managed way to do it. It doesn't work as well when you have to run something that federates itself and uses the ACL permissions inside of Active Directory. But I got to admit, it's a pretty neat uh, company. And I want to say, I'm looking on their website to confirm this, um, that HP has a hand in them. Hmm. I didn't know about that one. It's really it's a it the project's extensive and it's like really well put together. They do have the basic one for free and then um paid support versions of it. So, you know, same thing kind of a business model where you have a uh a version that you can run that's all community supported versus the licensed one. And it's reasonable, I think, on the licensing pricing and things like that. But it's it it looks like a pretty cool project uh because it m- it does single sign-on for a lot of different applications that you can load on there, other open source applications. And I realize for scalability, that is a, for enterprise companies that go, well, I have all these users. I want to create one sign-in for all the different functions they have. And it does have the ability to do that with a lot of different applications. So, mm-hmm. which include NextCloud and OpenVPN server um, and a lot of other stuff. A lot, mm. They have quite a few apps on there. So it's definitely something worth taking a look at. Um, it also has like the, some of the CRM tools. So you have your email and CRM and everything with single sign-on all tied together with your file sharing. It, it's kind of a run-your-own-cloud type thing. So it's something I want to look at. It's just one of those projects that it's big. So yeah. it's not easy to do a in-depth video on without spending a lot of time and research putting it together. So, But it's still it's, it's out there. The project's plugging away. Um, you can get the open-source version and test it yourself, and maybe it's something your company should look at. You know what I mean? It's It's... It's definitely interesting. And not listed here on DistroWatch, but there's an interesting distro I found right before we went on our big long trip. Um, we've got we've got two indoor cats, and I just wanted to make sure that I could see them, make make sure that they were eating uh, during the trip. So I installed this distro called Motion Eye OS. Oh yeah, and. Um, I ran it on a little Raspberry Pi, attached a Raspberry Pi camera, and uh, strung up this this camera with some string and tape and everything and pointed it at the cat's food and water bowls. And then I would VPN into the house and then watch watch my cats mm-hmm. during like their feeding time. And I got to see them, and it made me feel good because we were gone for so long. Um, but Motion iOS... Um, That's what the, runs my sump pump camera. Oh, yeah. Very nice. Uh, if you happen to have a Raspberry Pi camera or or just a webcam hooked to one and you want to be able to see inside of your house or your sump pump, check this thing out. 
Also, um, if you didn't know this, you we you can three D print cases for the Raspberry Pi that holds the camera and the Pi. Yeah. Um, so that's that's an option. I considered it, but it was about twelve a.m. when I finally got the system working. I'm like, I don't think Tom would appreciate me calling him right now. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you can always message me. Um, the uh, kind of related to that is the over on the desk. I didn't show you when we were playing with the bad USB Raspberry Pi project related. There's a Ponagachi. What a good name. It's a great name. It uh, captures <laughs> Wi-Fi packets, and it, it's got smile. Type in Ponagachi, and you'll see the smiley face on there. That way you don't have to get up and look at it. But it uh, it captures Wi-Fi packets that you can later pull and decrypt. Um, and it, it's got smiley faces. It says, I made a new friend every time it pones on another Wi-Fi. <laughs> it's really, really great. Oh. <laughs> and if it doesn't see any Wi-Fi, it says, I'm lonely, and has a sad face. <laughs> It's really mm. has it has so many things. It it's got a display on it, um, and it's an e ink display. Oh, I, I saw you posted that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, boy, is it cool! It's we've been playing with that thing. I've been trying to figure out a, a Raspberry Pi project to use an e ink display. Yes, because that's I think they're really cool. And low power, right? Yeah, low power. Um, the downside of an e ink display you don't know when your machine is locked up because mm-hmm. when you when you power it off, the e ink stays the same <laughs> even yeah. with no power. So you're like, well, is it locked up? Is it not on? I don't know. <laughs> It's really slow. Or, so the issue with e-ink displays are they're really slow refresh, right? Yeah. Uh, but then they're low power and they just stay at that screen, right? Unless yeah. you tell it to to clear it. I actually think there, there was a concept to use e-ink. Uh, there were some cases. It was only made. It was a Kickstarter program for iPhones only. Um, but it's an e-ink case for iPhone where the back of it can display different things. And because it's mm. low powered, it can send a signal and change the, what's on the display and then go back to sleep. So it doesn't drain your phone that much. But you can have whatever relevant things you want displayed on the back of your phone without having to leave the screen on. So, yeah, yeah they're kind of in for things like a time update or a recent message that you want displayed on your phone. They were kind of – it was a neat concept. Hmm. So we are – off the topic of DistroWatch now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we should probably, we're getting into the news topics now. So I think there's a lot of those. Because after you're, you know, don't talk about stuff for a little while. <laughs> Do you get some articles you want to start with? You just want me to start from the top. Why don't you start into it? Okay. So, Gnome Foundation being sued because Shotwell Photo Manager. Well, not because of Shotwell, because patent trolls. Oh, they're the worst. Mm. They're the worst. I don't usually condone violence, but if someone were violent, it's a pet control. No, I'm actually not condoning violence, so but come on. <laughs> Their people are really, they make my blood boil uh, using a really, really broad patent. And apparently, uh, I was doing some digging. If I'm not mistaken, this same person has a patent for electronic receipt delivery via email or something like that. There's So this, this is a patent troll company that was... Uh, you know, really broad patent issued. Uh, this happens a lot, and they just try to, it's obviously, as the name implies, it's just a patent troll. So, uh, yeah, it's a mess. It uh, may cost people money. The lawyers are going to win in the end. That's the always the unfortunate part. So hopefully Gnome prevails uh, and Shotwell doesn't go away. It's a good piece of software there. Yeah, patent trolls are the worst capitalists. Yes. They would definitely uh, be up there in that category. I mean, you know what? And most capitalists don't like them because they're breaking the market. They're not free market. They're actually an anti-free market. They're not using a patent to protect any technology. They're using it just for litigation. So most people uh, in that realm definitely just don't like them because they're like, it's you're actually stifling innovation only for profit but not to innovate. And we kind of need some type of law to encompass that at some point that you can't have it to stifle innovation if you're not making market improvements with having that. So... Yeah, that's that's my little legal news there. Don't worry, we don't dive too much more into that. 
It's a messy topic, and we'll just get angry. <laughs> <laughs> 11 mini PCs that come with Linux pre-installed. And some of these are uh, one or two of these ARM. This is actually from a little bit earlier this year, uh, but Intel NUC is on the list along with uh, the Meerkat by System76. These are all a bunch of different mini computers, and I really like the Mint Box one. I think we've over time talked about them. This is a good link to a list of them over on Ed's Faust. And uh, the Mint Box Mini 2 and Mini 2 Pro are nice, passively cooled little boxes. Matter of fact, they're so small, your monitor is going to be bigger. And I have seen this where people take and just bolt them to the back of the monitor. Some monitors even have little holders that will hold them. So now you have a really nice big display and you have a reasonably fast computer, at least fast enough to, you know, get your daily work done. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a pretty clever little design. Yeah. I like these. And except for the endless mini, I don't know what they were thinking when they made that. This thing looks like somebody, it's like a motor, it looks like a motorcycle helmet, but it's a PC of some sort. It's really? very, very strange. Is it, yeah, that one you're going to have to look and take my word for it. Um, it's weird. Uh, but it's actually using an ARM Logic S805 quad core. So this is actually ARM based as well. And we're seeing, you know, with Raspberry Pi and the Pine, all the different Pine devices from that company as well, we're seeing a lot of ARM devices and Linux uh, is eating them up. They're very popular there. And even Microsoft, I know, is trying to get in on that game because ARM has some really interesting use cases like all these Raspberry Pi stuff we were talking about. Endless Mission 1 is interesting too. It kind of reminds me of this weird artistically designed system uh it's a little intel celeron uh one but i I just like the look of that one that one actually looks kind of neat with like just a port on the front uh and then logic to apply c1000 a another celeron based one two gigs ram 32 gig storage but a lot of these neat little passively cooled systems are good uh and towards the bottom what we got here slim book and then a couple unpronounceables i don't know how to say they're is it entro entroware aura Aura. So lots of cool choices on there for your small Linux computing needs. And uh, like I said, most of these are small enough to fit right on the back of your monitor. So if you even have even a you know, 15, 17-inch monitor, mount those on the back. You have a nice little workstation. Mm-hmm. And we're, uh, one of my clients uses these in industrial control uh, setting because they have to have everything passively cooled. He uses, I think, the mint box ones nice for his uh, control systems. There's something very interesting I learned uh, recently about the Intel NUX. Um, there was an article from last summer that uh, Chick-fil-A, the restaurant, actually runs Intel NUC clusters at every single one of their restaurants. And these Intel NUCs run Kubernetes on top of them. So they've got, what, like 5,000, 6,000 restaurants, each running their own Kubernetes cluster on top of an Intel NUC cluster. That's mm-hmm. neat. Just thought it was pretty interesting that that little device can do so much. Yeah, yeah, it's in it's impressive. Uh, we're actually one of the experiments I have is just building a cluster out of a bunch of cheap computers for an HA cluster. Computers are inexpensive. Failure of hardware is inevitable, um, and being able to build a small inexpensive HA cluster so there's a lot of redundancy in a small space is a pretty cool idea. And we've seen people build Raspberry Pi clusters and things like that. <sighs> My next article is fun. Oracle demands 12K from Network Biz that doesn't use its software. They're basically using the same strategy of looking at IP addresses and demanding money. And in keeping with Oracle's, you know, for people not familiar with their business model, they don't have customers, they have hostages. And they were apparently running out of hostages, so they got their legal team together and said, how can we squeeze money out of people um, in a very unscrupulous way? VirtualBox seems like a good idea. Let's give it away for free. Offer an extension that is proprietary and it lets you know it's proprietary what it doesn't let you know is if you use it for commercial use and they have known ip addresses that download it 
that's how they're tracking you. So they're basically doing the same thing the movie industry goes, hey, that IP seems to have downloaded that virtual box extension. That IP appears to belong to a business. Let's squeeze them. Get the lawyers ready because our legal team is a profit center over at Oracle. <laughs> Here we go. Jeez. So uh, people who download the extension and if they think you're a business. By the way, this company is not using Oracle's uh, virtual box at all, but apparently um, their IP block, they do hosting and subleasing. So it's someone within there. And they're also saying, nor do we have any responsibility to tell you because it's also like co-working spaces. So it's not necessarily business. It could have been individual users. And uh, the legal battle continues. Do you think that they spent more than $12,000 just beginning this entire litigation process? And they're uh, only going after $12,000? Do you think it seems kind of ridiculous? I think Oracle's a ridiculous company. <laughs> yeah. I got to see one of their many, many buildings. I gave it uh, the the one-finger salute as I drove past, too. Yeah, yeah. I have heard the difference between God and Larry Ellis is Larry Ellis, or God doesn't think he's Larry Ellis. I mean, I'm just throwing it out there, guys. <laughs> No, like there's so many people that just really dislike them. And look at the whole debacle when they got into the office uh, market and things like that. They've they've made some. They they're known. All right. <laughs> like I said, it's uh, hostages, not customers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's how they view it. Docker, once worth over one billion dollars, tells employees it's trying to raise cash amid significant challenges. That's that speak for the runways this much. I hope you guys, uh, you know, are getting paid. So it's actually interesting. They're all the way down to – they went through a Series E funding lately, and now there was, I think, their last round. So now they're looking for some more capital. The problem is, and we were discussing a little bit for the show, and, of course, this was the namesake for the show, is Docker is a cool service, but anyone you know, amongst ourselves we talked to uh, talking about it, and anyone I know – People love spinning up stuff in Docker real quick to test things, but when it comes to production, they're not buying things from Docker. They're not buying the hosting platforms or anything that Docker offers. And it quickly, AWS, Google have made all these containerization and serverless platforms really easy. So it's really eaten away at their ability to monetize by offering to host some of that stuff. One of the some of the best things that the Docker company did was allow developers on all of the different platforms, Windows, Linux, and Mac, be able to use the same base system, just a Linux container uh, to develop their applications. And I think that Docker really pushed forward um, our ecosystem. Um, Docker also helped uh, by, by creating the Open Container Initiative. Technically, they didn't create it, but they are a big driver behind it. Um, they also uh, helped with Run C, uh, which is the uh, portion that runs your containers, and tons of other software that kind of now in 2019 we take for granted. Yeah, they, they've, I won't deny their contributions. They just need a better business model, I think, is one of their challenges. And uh, this, is, this is the problem with open source. You have to have a clear plan. I mean, like, for example, and we talked like Red Hat. Red Hat has a paid license support program where you can get enterprise-level support for the different products they offer, and that made them worth quite a bit of money. Their model works rather well. I've seen many other companies uh, recently, like XCPNG, they got funded for some startup. It didn't take too much to get the project going. And then from there, they offer support plans for businesses that want to use their product. They, it's free to use, but hey, here's our support and here's our monthly fees. They're very concise and clear how they charge. That's to me, is an ideal business model for open source. And uh, yeah, that's uh, something Docker's going to have to struggle with. One of the things that uh, Docker tried to do was have their hosted control plane for their Docker Swarm 
um, clustering technology. Now, Docker Swarm is in the same vein as uh, Mesos and Marathon or Kubernetes. And I believe that Kubernetes really ate Docker's lunch here. Um, it was just a overall better solution than Docker Swarm was. Um, most, most of the big hosting providers, uh, Google, Amazon, uh, Azure, yeah. they all have their own Kubernetes uh, system built in. I haven't seen one with a Docker Swarm integration. I could be wrong here. Um, but but well, that's just what I've noticed. Yeah, and I know that's a big talk at the Microsoft event. Even a while ago was all their Kubernetes stuff they had going on. So that's like where they're pushing it. It's not that you can't run some of the other stuff, but, you know, they're going to use the, that Kubernetes instead. So, yeah, it's an interesting challenge they have. Now, kind of related, the next story is Krita, the free and open source drawing program. I believe uh, your wife has used that at uh, times? Yes, she has. Yeah. And this is this is just really really cool software. Really cool software. It's available on Steam for nine ninety nine. Interesting. Interesting. Why did they do that? Why did they do that? Well, let's talk about that. So uh, it's this is actually done on purpose. It's not Steam trying to monetize an open source project and uh, make money on it. Uh, they found that to be an interesting way for ten dollars. You can donate to the project via the Steam, so you can actually install it through Steam as an application. When you pay the money, it's going to the project. And uh, the person I left the link to the person that did the post in Reddit uh, where they have a discussion about the methodology behind it. I thought that was really cool. And it says, uh, I'll read the headline here. It says. Hey, everyone, for the better part of a year, I've been managing Krita's presence on the Steam distribution platform, and I want to tell you all that Krita is now available on Steam Linux with a small price that goes directly towards funding development. So that's the whole thing. It's mm -hmm. an interesting way to monetize. So at first when I seen the headline, I'm like, oh, someone's charging for something, and what are they doing with the money? You know, thinking maybe it was nefarious or someone trying to charge for an open source project. You're like, no, no, the project's doing it, going, this is how we can get 10 bucks. It's an easy way because... Well, I don't know. I got a lot of games in Steam, and I got a credit card tied to Steam because, well, that's why all the games got there. <laughs> <laughs> so now, if I wanted to donate to the project, uh, I, you know, even though I know I can just load it for free, I can actually donate and contribute. And that makes me feel good. Little Timmy, you can't go to college because I have a Steam library. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. I like if you can evaluate how much it's worth, and it's just. <laughs> I don't know if it's sad or <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> something to reflect on. Uh, but I thought that was really cool. I, I I can't name another open source project that even comes to my mind that was uh, done in Steam like this. So that maybe there's a business model around this that we never thought of um, for some of these open source projects. Is Valve taking a cut of this? I'm pretty sure they do, but I don't know how much. Um, I, don't, I didn't dig into that. I know Valve takes a cut, but I don't know. Maybe they have some type of special thing for this or maybe they work with valve and it becomes awareness and valve has some special program where they offer people who have an open source project you want to bring it on there so they can get funded valve's always been pretty open to working with the community and pretty flexible on things so might be interesting now this is a trend we're seeing uh, again and germany is uh, more vocal than some of the other places about it german ministry hell-bent on taking back control of digital sovereignty and cutting dependency on microsoft Pain points include data collection, lock-in, and uncontrollable cost. And it's funny because I would expand that this is beyond just software. We're seeing this as a trend in the vendor markets uh, that sell switches, that sell Wi-Fi access points, that everything's like some type of vendor lock-in, and it turns into a pumpkin at midnight as soon as the license expires. And there's a lot of companies that go, you know, with these companies uh, coming and going and being over-evaluated and maybe potentially going out of business – I'm locked into their licensing models. So they also can make my budget kind of wonky because they decide that they need to make more money, so they change the license fees. 
I'm locked into their ecosystem and I don't want to rip out my infrastructure or rip out all the knowledge that my employees have of using these products. Uh, so let's just rip that Band-Aid off now. <laughs> and they're, once again, making uh, at a higher level uh, a real conceited effort to get off of more of the um, Microsoft platform. So uh, let's see. The analyst identifies pain points, which I like this. I don't know if I can say it properly, but it's Schernzenpunkten. And that's uh, pain, the pain points, as they call it. Germans, if you, uh, my daughter speaks some German, they mash a long bunch of terms together, like a group of adjectives become a word, <laughs> essentially how Germans work. So you could say software pain points, and they're going to say Schermsenpunkten. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, the first is data security. Telemetry transfers data to Microsoft. The user has limited insight and control over this, and it may contain personal data and therefore breaching GDPR. And this has been an interesting thing. So every time there's been a large iterative update of Windows 10, the kind of joke is you have to go back and swing back the privacy settings because it seems like each time they update it, they change where they are, they change how they are, and policies and everything. And uh, especially governments with all the spying that the U.S. has done. I've read the Snowden book, and this comes up a lot. They are just not trustworthy because well, the NSA and large corporate companies make good bedfellows, and they're going, our state secrets shouldn't be your state secrets. And before you guys say another word that you're not spying on us, Snowden told us you were, and we found out you were. So <laughs> they, they already have the proof that it's uh, been going on. So they're, you know, trying to get off the Microsoft uh, system. They don't blame them. Now, that's it, also really interesting because the city of Munich has had this long running, I think it's at about uh, yes. 16 years now, of trying to switch from uh, Windows over to Linux, I believe Debian. Yes. And uh, just last year, they decided, the city of Munich, the city council decided that they will be going back from Linux to Windows-based infrastructure by the end of 2020. And now um, the German ministry says, oh, no, 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 we're going to go to Linux. <laughs> I wonder how that's going to shake out internally. Hmm. It's it's going to be interesting. Um is I, I know that some of their problems, and maybe that's what it needs. It needs a national-level effort versus a city-level effort because there's one of the interoperability problems is the cities. Who do they communicate with? They serve the people, but they frequently have to communicate with other cities. So there's some interoperability challenges you face. But if you start at the top and say, everyone, we're all using it, all the cities are using it, you can get a different change because now from the top on down, so, because you think about it, even us, the state and federal level have some level of communication we have to do. If we're running Linux and we have some type of document conflict format, then the federal has a hard time with our documents. Uh, this is one of the challenges people, when people ask, why don't I push my clients more to open source? The automotive industry doesn't lend itself to that. And the reason why, Ford, for example, when you do your document formats, I work for a company we tried working with even, this is back in 2002, moving to the open document formats were available then, back when it was Star Office and things like that. We could not get good compatibility with the Ford bid sheets and everything else. So if we wanted to do business Ford, we were going to send it in back then to before DocX, but you're going to do the doc formats. So uh, interoperability is a challenge. So coming from the government on down, seems like it might might actually happen. We might see it. We might mm. see a cold country go Linux. It'll be a while before we see that here over in the U.S. So if you don't want to de-Microsoft yourself, but you do want to de-Google yourself, because we've become overly dependent on Google phones. New video demo of the Libre, Fime sh uh, Li Libre M5 shows that it actually works. And it's the phone um, from the uh, Librem 5 
Uh, LibreFrime is arguably one of the most anticipated Linux devices of the year now that it started shipping to the backers that uh, supported it. And they've got a video demo on here, and it's basically a fully open source phone. And this comes on the heels of also Pine getting their phone ready to ship. Uh, so we're going to see more of these open source phones that run with not just the Libre, uh, Librem software, but also run with other Linux distributions that can run on a phone. They have phone applications. And of course, this is all open source. So as this becomes more popular, we're going to be able to see this. I'm actually looking at the Pine phone. Uh, and yes, I'm way too deep in Google because I use Google Fi, but I can also get just a data card for Google Fi and then use a VoIP provider and have a secondary device that doesn't track me. And... I have full control over, so it might be something interesting to look at. This phone looks very, very nice. I think this is the Ubuntu phone that I've wanted for yes. so, so long. Yeah, it actually seems like a real, and they have demos of it, it's a real working, like, functional device that's not cludged together in a messy way like some of the other projects that feels like something you wouldn't want to put in your pocket. This is a solid, well-built, uh, you know, true phone. So that's uh, that's kind of interesting that these are getting there. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, I don't know the availability of this in the U.S., but I know you can get it. The Huawei MateBook now comes with Linux, and it's been known that the Huawei MateBooks work really well with Linux, um, but now they are shipping it with Linux, so that's pretty cool too. And I, I think it's going to be, you know... Uh, one of those challenges of if they're going to be able to come back in the U.S. because of all the different bands, being that they're a Chinese company, et cetera, et cetera. But it's still interesting, and there's still ways around those uh, bands and getting them in here. But being able to ship it right with Linux, once again, I, I believe Linux has actually become, if I understand this, quite more uh, quite popular in China. So their hardware, of course, being the, they're looking for different solutions, and uh, it's it's actually when I've looked at it, it's really nice. Now it does ship with Deep In. And mm -hmm. we know the controversy, or if you don't remember, looking deep in, has spyware on it. Um, it's a combination of maybe it's spyware. There's some good debriefs on it. They've removed it, but it's basically also the different concept. And Ch Tony can kind of speak to this because he spent some time in China. They have a different concept of how they think of the government. We are very fearful of our government, so to speak, and we're not sharing and, you know, this us versus them versus the Chinese. They're like, why wouldn't I send all my data to the government? It's a cultural difference. Yeah, uh, well, they, they see it that we're sending it to the government, you're sending it to all the companies that are making money off yeah. of you, so what's the difference? Yeah, here I am giving all my data, letting Google have it, monetize my existence and every breath I take, and they're like, well, yeah, like you said, you let companies do it, and you've find that to be a fine trade we're, we're thinking it's good to the government do as it does it so yeah. it's actually i'm going to say a different cultural philosophy but nonetheless you can if it runs deep in it runs other stuff so you can wipe deep in off of it and uh, have yourself a really slick linux laptop the i won't lie they have some nice hardware did you hear about that pine 64 uh watch yes so you're talking about the pine phone and they got the pine watch too yeah and i'm it's excited to be, for this watch it's supposed to be 25 bucks yeah that's mostly why I'm excited for it. Yeah, it sounds very reasonable. I tell you, I just kind of want to buy the all the Pine stuff and just have it on a table and just spend all day playing with it. They right. have so many cool things. They got those uh, – they make they, – and I, I'm wishing the price to come down a little bit, but um, one of the things you can build with Pine is they have a case for it and everything that will hold uh, up to two hard drives or I think it holds four laptop hard drives. Hmm. It's a tiny little – ARM-based with SATA access on it, with actual SATA ports, um, NAS drive you can use. And you don't want to run free NAS on it. It's not designed for that. But they do have a version of, un, not Unraid, I'm sorry, um, it's the other, it's a Debian-based NAS system. But 
that names on tip my tongue. Everyone asked me to review it, and it's, I keep saying I don't have a use case for it, but I would have a use case for it for this. Um, Open Media Vault. That's it. Open Media Vault, and it will mm -hmm. run Open Media Vault, and it does support RAID. It's going to use the MDM, uh, MD, yeah, MDADM, MDADM, MDADM uh, tool to run software RAID on there. But you can have now a small. Very light, and of course, if you're using laptop drives, low, low wattage, low heat, low wattage, all the little things you want to put in your closet to have an off-site storage that you put at an off-site location beside your house um, that wouldn't bother someone being there. And then we can store some data on there. It has all the encryption options and all the standard things you get with Linux. You can store your data encrypted there and have a tiny little low wattage, low heat box with no fans or anything in it. And that's all based on Pine. They have some really cool projects if you check them out. But the watch, 25 bucks. <laughs> That is a uh, pretty neat option there. Yeah. Um, this is a video link, but it goes to the open compute standard. And you can read through all the open compute standard. And what this, what this is, is the data center companies realized that um, specific knowledge, so to speak, the how we build our rack used to be these proprietary deep secrets. But they realized, back to sharing uh, progresses us further, sharing how we build our racks, sharing how we build our data centers under the Open Compute Project helps everyone. And they realized that wasn't where their value was, was building data centers. It's the data. So they're not willing to share data with each other. Facebook monetizes your existence and Google monetizes your existence, but they're not willing to share how they do that. But mm. how they store it, turns out that's an open compute standard. And uh, this was kind of a cool video. They walk through how they design based on very open standards. Um, their thing, and you can read about how they do it, but this is actually a rack in place. And it's a video that walks you through each little thing, how it comes out, how it's designed. Um, and one of the things that when you build the cloud that, Phil visited is um, power consumption. And if you think about this from an energy loss standpoint, computers don't run on 120 or 240 volts. Computers run on 12 volt rails and 5 volt rails. That energy conversion is delivering 120 volt to all these different com components that each one has a certain level of loss and each one converts the power. They have power banks in there that convert everything to the standard 12 volts at the rack and then all devices run off of it. So massive savings, massive engineering changes, different concepts in building, 100% open standards that they're building this on. That's why they're showing it off. So this is what it physically looks like. And I thought it was a really cool dive if you care about hardware and things like that. Now, is this feasible for the small home gamer or, let's say, a small to medium-sized business? Or is this only for large players? Really for large players for now, but it's like anything, it will come down. I can imagine a future UPS company starting to do this where instead of having a UPS that is, if you look inside of how a UPS works, it converts either 120 or 240 back to a battery. Then it converts that battery back over to 120 volt outputs or 240 outputs and then brings it back to each computer that brings it back down from 120 down. There's so much efficiency loss and so much heat generated in all those conversions. So it wouldn't be too difficult to build a common 12-volt rail system. So just in concept, you could actually get this built and take all those servers you have, reduce your energy bill by just unplugging all the standard ACX ports that power your server and have one big power supply that reduces it and powers all of them. You would reduce the weight, uh, reduce the uh, inefficiencies of conversion. So I think the concept of building it this way would be 
feasible for someone who's technical savvy that wants to have something energy efficient at home when they build a rack. But eventually, I imagine it will become more of a standard where we don't plug in 120 when we have rack mount stuff. We start plugging in standard 12 volt to all these. Stepping 12 to 5 is just an easy reduction. So having a 12 volt back end on there. And the phones companies, they're not new to this. Been doing it forever. If you've ever been in a phone center in the back, it's all been the same flat mm -hmm. uh, voltage. Matter of fact, that's one of those trivia questions I wanted a hacker thing of why it's all positive ground. It's because negative ions attract the, uh, I'm sorry, negative, yeah, yeah, positive ground because the positive ions will attract the uh, corrosion. So uh, if you ever go in there, they're actually reverse polarity on a lot of the phone system switches. But they've been doing it for a long time using uh, DC lower voltage distribution and doing one large conversion when it comes in. So now we're catching up at the data centers going, those phone people back in the 50s when they <laughs> built that, they had an idea that we should have looked at sooner. And by the way, when Google revealed their secret of how they built their data centers forever ago, that's how Google's been building their data centers is on more uh, systems in a similar way. So it's just a cool dive into that. So you can read about the open compute standard if you Google it. There's all kinds of documentation of all the big companies involved in it. But then seeing what it physically looks like assembled, that's where that was cool. Moving Firefox to a faster four-week release cycle. Um, this makes sense to me. We'll get faster. The browser is like the big threat surface for all the computers. I can lock all the firewall down and all that fun stuff, but I'm still browsing the web, and we've been finding zero days in browsers and Chromes and everything. There's always another one, and it almost always starts now with the browser, getting people to visit a site, uh, malicious hacking. So Firefox moving to a faster four-week release cycle is actually kind of exciting. Uh, so hopefully we see iterations faster um, and we see patches coming out a little faster as they, you don't have to wait for them if there's some minor, not super severe bug. So I thought that was kind of cool. There's a dichotomy there though, because just because it's faster, you also have the potential to find more. New bugs. Yeah. yeah, new bugs. I know. I know, I can't tell which one's right. <laughs> but that's why they call it the bleeding edge. Um, even still, I'm excited for this as well. I'm a, I'm a Firefox user through and through. Yeah. I'm, I'm split because I use um, Chrome for my business stuff and then Firefox for my personal. So that's how I know if I'm doing something personal or business. That's... <laughs> <laughs> now, as much as I'm not a fan of that company that holds your customers hostage, he did something kind of cool. Oracle shows 1060 Raspberry Pi supercomputer, <laughs> and this is actually pretty neat. So at Oracle Open World, those Open World Oracle, I know uh, they call it that in name. It's certainly not an open place. <laughs> but tucked away in Oracle code, uh, one area, the company had something unique, a 1060 Raspberry Pi B3 Plus cluster. It calls the Raspberry Pi supercomputer. And it's pretty novel. It looks really, it looks like a TARDIS. It's, uh, if, you know, if you're a Doctor Who fan, it's really cleverly built and... I'm just thinking it's pretty neat. Uh, power is not provided through the PoE, but it, uh, greatly with cables. We told on this installation, heat and power pumping on all the PoE had too much cost. And I bring that up because we were just talking about power distribution. But when you think about it, they're all running back on the, the standard USB voltage of 5 volts that powering all these. So their power distribution is actually efficient. And they did show off uh, that it can really do some pretty cool stuff. Um, and being that hardware fails if a couple of these pies out of the 1060 fail you got a little redundancy in there uh, but for massively parallel arm computing this is an impressive proof of concept here i thought it was weird that oracle built it i thought it's weird oracle does anything they share with the crowd so <laughs> i'm not an oracle fan right <laughs> and uh what else have we got here oh in the news of the weird microsoft linux conference announced and it takes place in march so uh in the conference news category mm -hmm. microsoft's hosting a linux conference and i laugh because if you remember in 20 
2018, no, 2017, we sat down with Corey Sanders and we said that Microsoft should attend Linux conferences. Yeah. You know, go big or go home, they're going to make their own. <laughs> they probably didn't figure out one big enough to attend because Linux conferences are not the scale and scope of a Microsoft conference. So they go, we're going to hold our own conference, make it bigger with more Linuxy things or something. <laughs> I thought it was interesting that they're getting on there. So in addition to their um, Build Ignite conferences that they do, they're going to have this Linux conference. The two-day two event will feature presentations by Microsoft team behind the Windows subsystem for Linux. The creators of Penguin, WSL distributions, and more uh, pertinent to our taste, perhaps, on the Ubuntu WSL team, WSL team at Canonica, a Canonical. I'm having word problems today. But we interviewed those people as well that did the Windows system for Linux. So it is the same people, even though they didn't name them by name. It's the same people we did an interview back in 2017, back when people were making fun of us, calling this the Microsoft Linux review or Sunday Sunday morning Microsoft review or something. Right. I don't know. <laughs> right. we, we had some hate for interviewing Microsoft people. Um, the reality is you can't ignore them in the room. We did not give them a pass on their bad behaviors, and we actually had some interesting conversations with them there. So I don't regret going. And I'm fine with people who made fun of us for it. <laughs> um, and I think that's it all I have for the news. What do you got, Phil? Uh, I've I've added my couple of links to the show notes and interjected my thoughts and ramblings. Um, but I see that Tony does have a few things. Okay. Okay, Tony added them. Cool. Um, so, yeah. So I found uh, that uh, Calibre 4 or is coming out with version 4 now. Calibre nice. is great and software. I it used is. to yeah. use that. So if... If you haven't used it, it's a uh, ebook reader that's uh, it's open source and uh, cross-platform. So I run it on my Linux computer, but you can run it on uh, Mac and Windows also. I still use uh, it for all my ebooks that I have uh, collected, and I first found out about it because if you can remember back to the Nook tablets mm-hmm. that um, Borders used to offer, uh, was it Borders? I don't remember. One of the book places. Anyways, um, you could hack them, and I did. So in you could also oh, use yeah. Calibri on them, I and that. I did. So they were really great readers for having your own look library with no DRM, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yep. I used to read comic books on uh, Calibre. Uh, when, when, I, when I didn't have money to purchase the actual comic books, you know, you can find them from some sort of less than reputable source. Right. And Calibre was uh, the software that I used to just look at them, and it was great. Uh, what's nice about it is this is that they went through and completely rewrote the ebook reader um, part of it. So uh, it's supposed to be, how do they word it? Um, I mean, I just have to take a look at it, com- re-index all my books. Yeah, completely rewritten the ebook viewer that focuses on presenting the book text to users without any distraction. I'm thinking distractions mean like bugs or mm-hmm. or formatting problems. So yeah. Uh, that so was always sometimes a challenge. I yeah. I haven't. I mean, I thought about going back to it. I've gotten so far away from um, reading books, not physical books, but like even eating books. Mm-hmm. I've kind of swung far away from it because I do so many audio books now because I do it while I'm riding my bike. And uh, but winter's coming, so you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> insert joke. Um, but with winter coming, I can't ride my bike as much because it gets uncomfortable because Michigan is tragically cold. And mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, but that's how I how, how I finished the Snowden book was uh, I went on a bike ride and I ended up going 58 miles because I just didn't want to stop listening to the book. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> nice job. And I wanted exercise. So yeah. I solved two problems. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that Cleaver has a, a server backend? Really? That you can connect to. And uh, it's used to be able to write ebooks. 
Oh, that's and, cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. Hmm. So so if you're an author out there and you want uh, an ebook uh, editor, then Calibre also has that available. It's it's a great tool for organizing all the books. I yeah. have um I, because I'm a data hoarder. Whenever I find books, I uh, hoard them. And I was I was going through my data because I was moving it again when I got that new computer I built. Um, I I actually got a data some type of uh, accolade in Reddit for hoarding data in one of my write ups. <laughs> but it's I have all my stuff from the '90s when I downloaded it from BBS. Yeah. And back when that was a trouble to store, now it's not. I have carry over every new computer carries over all the data, and it's all backed up because it synchronizes, um, even off site. So I still have all my. Uh, I what is that? The Anarchist Cookbook that was like the secretive thing used to download from BBSs, and we contributed. Plus the Babel mm. files. Do you guys remember Babel files at mm. all? They were the jargon files and things like that. The that were maintained in text records. And what we would do is you download them from one BBS. You'd see you do a differential to see if there's anything missing. You'd add it. You'd upload it to the next BBS you logged into to add to their jargon file, so you could have, you know, whatever these latest things were. It was those mm-hmm. fun games we played back in the, oh man, it would have been uh, 1992 or 93. Wow. <laughs> and I still have all that data. I don't even know why I have it, but mm-hmm. <laughs> just I do. <laughs> yeah. You know what I like about Clebra? It's more than just a like EPUB book fi- or format. You know, it does PDFs and. Oh yeah. And others. Yeah, I, I use it to organize indexes. Um, a bunch of the stuff I have was scanned into PDF. So someone had a collection of old, old magazines that I had gotten. And I just wanted to have them because they were old, like, I don't like 70s popular science stuff. And I'm like, this is going into my collection because it's a PDF. Yeah. Therefore, I shall add it. And Kleber uh, can help index all that. I actually don't have Kleber installed anymore. So I haven't re-indexed all that. But now I have a reason to. And I do that's a good topic. And yeah. uh, it, it always is fun because it discovers all the old things I have. And I'm like, why do I have all this? Oh, yeah, because I can. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, I used uh, uh, that you can convert uh, formats also within Calibri. So if you have a PDF that you're importing in, you can create an EPUB out of it or the other way around from EPUB to PDF or things like that. Yeah. And EPUB is a great format for all those e-ink readers that are out there mm-hmm. and things like that. I really got to admit, um, reading on an e-ink device is wonderful if you've never done it. Like they, I, reading on a tablet or my phone is okay. Um, I seem to get more eye fatigue, but e-ink does, hmm. you know, maybe it's a mental thing, but I don't seem as fatigued on it. And I know it's, there, there are some probably scientific reasons why, because it's more static, it's not refreshing and et cetera, but it, it just looks really good. Is there any current devices now that are doing, are still coming out with e-ink or because I thought they've all gone to like LCD. No, I think they still um, e I'm, ink. Um, which one is it? The Amazon one is still a popular, popular seller. Hmm. I think it's come down to really them more than anyone else, um, because if it ties into the whole Amazon book ecosystem, it's really convenient. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking at the latest name of the latest device. Yeah, it still sells the paper white. It's called. Um, I do know this as well. They've made them now completely like dunk proof, waterproof, and everything. Wow. Yeah, I, I remember Leo Laporte talking about them. He still, I know he still mentioned he uses his a lot on the uh, Twit network. I forget how long though. I think they. Uh, yeah, it says it can spend up to sixty minutes in two meters of water. Wow. Um, and I know it says it somewhere, but the battery on them lasts somewhere in the line of some incredible amount of time hmm. six months or something yeah i know it's something uh six weeks of usage hmm. <laughs> that's what it says oh uh six week usage based on half hour reading of each day so not quite that long but so that's still a long time i mean that's 
that's yeah. a long time between charges, and they come with cellular in them now, so you can just get your new books without having to connect into Wi-Fi or anything. So, oh yeah, yeah, they're so I guess they still exist; they're still out there. And I was thinking about that because I, I want to go offline again and just read a book, and I was going to do it with something like an e-ink reader, just sit and read for a while. I was going to go rent a cabin up north or go to a cabin and just be there for like three days of reading. Actually, yeah. I, I watched a uh, documentary about Bill Gates, and so I've been talking about it before I watched the documentary, but it was a good documentary about him. No, it doesn't cover much of his time of being a bad human at Microsoft. It does cover a lot of his uh, philanthropical endeavors, but he also talks about his. He takes weekends or even weeks, and he's always done this. He's always taken his weekends and just turned them into reading weekends where he dives into topics, like reads the hmm. books cover to cover. But he goes a step further than I've ever. He contacts the author and everything, so mm-hmm. he goes really deep into it. So. All right, I think we've we've talked about Cleaver enough all and right. all the fun things we can do with it. <laughs> Is that the end of the show? Is there anything else? Mm, don't believe so. I don't have anything else to add. We have talked for over an hour of all the wonderful Linux news. Caught you guys up on this. This has been a good time. And it's funny, I have not seen literally Tony or Phil since the last Sunday morning Linux review. Well, Phil stopped in because he, uh, he got a bunch of uh, hardware to do some demonstrations on open source firewalls. Thank you very much for that. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, if you ever want to borrow stuff, Tony, for playing with open source firewalls, we have all kinds. Of, we have a plethora of things over there now. All right. We're getting more and more stuff sent to us, too, so I, I don't mind. I, mean, I will let more of my friends. Uh, we kind of talked about setting up Lab as a service, and mm. um, it's been on my to-do list. I think it's I think it's got ideas. we I got to put the right people together to make it happen, but why not test all of our stuff out? We, we built a <laughs> – you're going to love this. We built a Ponage Lab, and we built it on its own VLAN. Which is one o dot or is one three three seven is the VLAN I tag, <laughs> and then the uh, IP range for it is ten dot one three dot one three dot zero so or one uh, three seven dot zero. So we've been having fun with it because um, we've been doing a lot of security testing. So we just built this whole special lab for it with a special server, and um, pen testing is fun. That's yeah. fun. Yeah, boy, unexpected things. Uh, the pleasure of unexpected discovery when products do things you didn't expect them to do. Right. We've been fuzzing stuff too. You, fuzzing tools have gotten easier to use. You can just like you can use like Durbuster and all kinds of stuff. Mm. It's mm. Uh, just point Durbuster at whatever application you thought was secure and start poking away at it. <laughs> Anyways, so that's the end of the Sunny Morning Linux review. The whale in the room, episode three fifteen. Yes. You know, I we what? talked about oh. it being related to Docker, but how did we get it to whale? Because Docker is big. Uh, Docker's logo. Docker's logo is a whale. Mm-hmm. And then they made the brilliant move to rename it to Moby back in 2017, which confused the internet. Yeah. yeah. And uh, now Moby is a collection of all of the different pieces that runs Docker, but you use the Docker command line. And if you're still confused, don't worry. The internet is too. <laughs> That's how we got to the whale in the room. And I'm sure I want to know the inside of it. So obviously Moby related to Moby Dick, the famous novel. So um, that is a whole nother topic. So I'm sure there's like some play on words or someone's a Moby Dick fan inside of there uh, to even come up with all the naming schema around it. So we've gone this far. Just keep adding whales to it. Just keep (laughs) more whales, whales all the way down. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We got a theme, guys. Run with it. We forgot why we do it. (laughs) Actually, my British friend said that was the funniest thing. I asked him what Boxing Day is. He stared at me a second. He said, look, 
we have traditions older than your country. We don't question why we do them. I was like, <laughs> that's a really good answer. He goes, exactly. <laughs> All right. All right. All right. So you've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. Uh, this was episode 315. Yep. The whale in the room again. <laughs> yeah. This is Tony Bemis. Phil Parada. And Tom Lawrence. Mm-hmm. See you next time. Yep. You've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. If you would like more information about this or other shows, go to smlr.us. Feel free to send comments to show at smlr.us. I'm John Miller. If you don't like it, you can bite my 8-bit metal ass. That's bite with a Y.